The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
This morning, I'm gonna start our worship the way we begin it in such moments. We got word this week from his husband that John H. Simons Jr., who had been attending this church for 30 years and knew it as his spiritual home, a place where his husband said he found the community the most uplifting in his life, so much so that he had remembered the church along with two other organizations in his bequests, that he was out riding his bicycle and was struck by a car and passed away. So John, we extinguish a candle in our altar in honor of you, your graciousness, your love of this church, your loyalty on this Sunday that you would have adored to have been present at. So good morning. Starting worship this way is more appropriate than maybe we realize at first, but you will by the end of service. <laughs> you will. I'm Vanessa Southern, I'm the senior minister of this congregation, and I'm here with Laura Shenham, our minister of congregational life, and Richard Davis Lowell, our worship associate. In our bonnets, well, they are. Mine keeps falling off, and it didn't seem like I should wear it for the opening extinguishing, but it's great to see all of you here with your bonnets. Don Williams, I went to visit him, and he knows, and so did you. He knows that the bonnets are out, and I sent him a picture of them laying out at the table, and I hope that Galen, you will capture lots of bonnet moments for us to share with him and David as we celebrate this Easter in high style. If you have bonnets you want to donate to the collection, please do. We'll put them out next year. I want to thank everyone who is making this Sunday possible. Jackson Munn, is that you? I don't have my distance glasses up in the, uh, in the chancel. And of course, um, our beloved Jonathan Silk. And we've got Santana monitoring chat. So those of you who are on live stream, if you have any questions, Santana should be able to answer them for you and help you find your way, get an order of service, which I hope you have. I want to thank our flower team our beauty squad, um, Judy Payne is listed, but there are others on that community that make our chancel look gorgeous every year, and the Easter lilies this morning are just stunning. Thank them for bringing beauty and spring into this space of all days, bringing spring into the space to Linda Messner, our head usher. And especially this Sunday to our musicians, to Reiko Oda Lane, our organist, and Jason Park, who is with her in trumpet, and both of them in bonnets. If you turn around, you might be able to see. To Mark Sumner, our music director, and Bill Gans, who's accompanying, and to our choirs, both our singing choir and our bell choir. We will finish this service. We'll have the whole service will be beautiful, but we will finish it in high Easter style. I want to point out that this is the first Sunday where masking is not required, though of course you are welcome to wear masks as you feel comfortable, so it feels like a particular Easter Sunday. I also want to let you know that there are three books written by members of this, um, uh, ministers of this congregation, past and present. Um, the Religious Center with a Civic Circumference, the History of the Church that John just published which is, sorry, I've got my basket of goodies right here. You're reading. 
We have my book that came out this fall, Little Did I Know, an anthology on loving and companioning young lives with um, Richard is, has a piece in it too. So that is available. And we have copies of A Walk on the Beach, which is collected sermons by Harry Schofield, who shaped many people's lives. So I have sheets um, with details about the cost of those books. And if you let us know, we'll get them to you. And I did have chocolate kisses to give out. And then Laura and I remembered that a kiss on Easter is not a good thing. <laughs> And if you don't know, we can have a little class in the other chapters of the story that won't be told today. So instead, if you today are order books, I've got Easter bunnies for you. That's a little incentive. You can fill out a form and you can, I'll let you help yourself to an Easter bunny. And then we'll get the books to you. You can hand me the sheet. So but I'm gonna take my order of service back. So with that, I welcome everybody here for this glorious Easter morning. And I hand it over to you. We will now light our chalice. Those of you joining us via live stream, if you have a chalice or candle at home to light on your own, please do so. Let's say the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Please rise and body your spirit as you are able to sing together our opening hymn, number 270, found in our gray hymnal, O Day of Light and Gladness.
Good morning. I'm Richard Davis Lowell, and if this is your first time watching, thanks for joining us. You can be emailed our weekly newsletter, The Flame, and receive the link to our order of service, to our Sunday live stream, if you fill out one of our connections forms. The connections forms are found in the pews in front of you and on the welcome table outside the sanctuary or available through a link in our order of service or in the video description of our service. Before a few announcements, I'd like to invite up Dolores Perez Hilbron and David Hilbron, our annual giving co-chairs this year to share an update. Wow, good morning and happy Easter, everybody. What wonderful hats I see. Oh, they're so unique. Every one of them, beautiful. Wow, there are such unusual Easter bonnets. How come you're wearing flowers in your hair and not a hat, Dolores? Oh. You know, I'm wearing flowers as a symbol of the renewal of nature at this time of year. Speaking of which, one reason I support this Unitarian Universalist community is that we can each interpret holy and celebrate holidays according to our own personal beliefs. And remember this song? When you come to San Francisco, be sure to wear a flower in your hair. I'm glad you all remember that. Right. <laughs> and today, we not only celebrate new life and springtime, but we are grateful to report the latest on the pledge drive. As of Friday, we have reached a total of $511,413. With, with 131 households pledging and about 100 remaining to pledge. <laughs> so it's looking good. We want to thank everyone, our members, visitors, and new friends for contributing to the work of this community. It's not over yet, but we have a good running start. That sounds wonderful. In a week or so, we will celebrate the new banners, which will proudly identify our UUSF buildings. The final designs are posted on the gallery, and the banners will be raised quite soon. We'll let you know about it. Uh, also, last week after service, a couple of folks wanted to pledge and ask us if we had forms, which we did not have. Today, you can get pledge forms in the office and leave them there when they are completed. Thanks, Thanks again, again, and, and let's, let's make, make this, this a banner, banner year. So I'd like to call your attention to a couple of announcements. First, to let you know that there will not be a coffee hour after service today. 
The reason for this is that on Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, we open our building to the good folks of Tenderloin Tessies, mostly volunteers who cook and serve a free meal to anyone in our neighborhood or community who wishes to come and be welcomed and fed with food and love and joy. So we need to make room for them to set up and to feed our neighbors. Thank you for understanding. Next week, however, we are going to make up for it. <laughs> On Sunday morning, April 16th, we have Marco Bellettini, who once served this congregation back to preach. Then we will all rush out somewhere or bring a bagged lunch or take a walk and come back because at 2 p.m. is the ordination of our own Meg McGuire, who served as an intern here during the pandemic. Meg will be joined by members of the Columbus, Ohio congregation where she grew up, both in person and online, and members Judy Payne and Luann Wien and Ben Baer are planning a gorgeous reception afterwards. It's like old school church, all day, nonstop, <laughs> soul feeding. So everyone come and stay. The order of service lists our upcoming events and links to opportunities to connect to any or all that are of interest to you. Welcome, everyone. It's so great to see you. So let's take a moment and greet each other. We'll hear a musical cue when it's time to gather again.
So I can't have you guys talking too long. This is a story that um, my daughter and I wrote. I think I mostly wrote it, but I think she offered some dramatic um, embellishments years ago. It's a town called... Once there was a little town called Spurned. It was back behind the main highway that connected two big cities in one small state. Years before, the town had had coal mines, but those had shut down a long time ago. And the people left were fewer, and the jobs that remained were fewer and lower paying. There were big houses in this town that spoke of its former glory, but increasingly, they were worn down, ramshackle testaments to a bygone era. For years, the town had had the biggest Easter egg hunt in the state. It was covered by national press, and the kids in town looked forward to it the entire year. With ever-shrinking resources, over the years, the hunt got smaller and smaller until the press stopped coming. And then last year, Easter came and went without any Easter egg hunt at all. Mr. Sueño had grown up in Spurned. He had been the branch manager of the local bank for as long as anyone could remember. In that capacity, he watched the clientele shrink and the savings accounts grow smaller. But what bothered him the most was the sense of hopelessness among the young people. They'd begun to believe, because the world seemed to pay little attention to them, that they weren't worth paying much attention to. Mr. Sueño knew what it was like to feel special, and for him, so much of that was tied up in the childhood memories, like that of the annual spurned Easter egg hunt. So, Mr. Sueño decided to do something about the despair that concerned him. He did the only thing he could think of. He planned an egg hunt. For most of the year, he filled plastic eggs with little toys and stickers. He drove 50 miles to the big city to pick up large boxes of chocolate eggs that arrived, fetching them there so no one at the post office in Spurn would guess what was up. He even stitched a big bunny costume that completely covered his face so no one would know it was him. And on the night of Easter Saturday, he went out into the field in front of Town Hall, where he'd always gone as a child for the big hunt, and he decorated from late at night until just before dawn. When the people of Spurn woke that Easter morning, they found on the front cover of their paper a picture of Mr. Sueño in his bunny costume. He'd sent it to the editor the day before, along with a note, and both appeared under the title, Easter Bunny Returns to Spurn. The note was reprinted in full, along with the bunny paw that appeared at the end. It read, Dear gorgeous children of Spurned, please forgive me my absence last year. You see, I've been busy in places where there was great need, and I, I knew that you could spare me for a while, but now I'm back. I'm coming to you again to show you my love for you, and to remind you that you're all very special kids. Someday you will put Spurned back on the map as a place of hope and prosperity. 
So study hard and pay attention to what it is that you are meant to bring to my favorite town, how you're meant to bring it back to life. See you next year. The Easter Bunny. The kids and their parents rushed down to the town square, and those parents who remembered the Easter's from their childhoods held the children at bay until 10 a.m. when the fire department blew its whistle as it always had on that day. And the fun began. It was the best Easter the children of the town remembered ever having, and they remembered and marveled at the letter the bunny had sent. It had said they were special, they recalled, and it said they were the future of their town's prosperity, its hope. They mattered, it said. Each year thereafter, late Easter Saturday night, the bunny, with some of his newfound helpers, laid a store of eggs for the children to find, and each year the paper printed his picture and a letter telling the kids some other aspect of how it was that they were important and special. So the children of that town grew up looking for their way to make a difference, believing it was their destiny. In time, they went away to the big cities for college or trade school, and in time, they returned, starting businesses, bringing innovation, restoring those old homes, endowing art centers, making sure everyone had a living wage, and all the children of that town grew up feeling as special and as destined for greatness. And the town came to life each and every Easter. It was memorable, perhaps the most cherished memory every generation of children in Spurn had. So one year, the town decided to rename itself. It was not coincidentally the same year that Mr. Sueno retired from the bank. In fact, the town moved that it be renamed in his honor because he symbolized so much of what was good about the place and its citizens agreed. Thereafter, they called themselves Sueño, which in Spanish means dream. The words of our covenant are some of the promises we make to one another about what it means to commit to being in community, this community together. I invite you to say them with me. Love is the spirit of this church, and the service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another.
you are children or youth and you would like to join in some Easter activities, please join me at the back of the sanctuary. Heavenly Parent, please guide my thoughts, words, and deeds as I try to figure all of this out on my own. <laughs> I know you're there for me. I feel you. I need you in my life, and I'm trying to be closer to you. But it's hard. Sunrise, sacrifice, redemption, resurrection, those themes define or describe Easter for me. They always have, and they merge this year in the trifecta of Passover, Ramadan, and Easter. The sacrifices of Lent, well, as a child, my, my family never observed sacrifices during Lent. The idea of giving up something, depriving myself of something satisfying or an urge or a desire, that's not really in my tradition, but I appreciate the thought and the effort. Passover with its avoidance of leavened bread is paired this year with Ramadan, during which observers refrain from life-giving food and water during daylight hours. They're both attempts to remind us of the holy in our lives by suggesting sacrifice, recognizing hunger and thirst, then celebrating community by coming together again in joyous special meals after the day's rituals have concluded. In all three traditions, I see common things like reflection, fasting, avoiding certain foods, acts of charity, special prayers. They all resonate with me. These traditions remind me of just how human I am and how much I need connection. I need to breathe common air, feel another person's presence while relishing, remembering, and sometimes enduring common practice. It may not be pretty, neat, or easy, but my need for community is baked into me. It's why I'm here today. Common rituals, things we do together, they've always had meaning for me because they exist they're revered, repeated, even without understanding, and sometimes only the remotest connection to what they meant to someone else, and I'm okay with that. I really am. A few years ago, I got my first ashes on Ash Wednesday. Not being Catholic, I, I wondered for a minute if I should, but as I contemplated the act, I recognized and appreciated the longing I had for the presence of the sacred in that act, sublimating my own desires, thoughts, and needs to that moment when a priest, someone who has dedicated their lives to the sacred, put their such smudged thumb on my forehead and ushered a, uttered a blessing. As I wondered if they could tell or even cared that I wasn't Catholic, I only wished it meant more to me or was somehow more transformational. I remember appreciating the moment for what it was, a tangible expression of my search for meaning and the sacred in my life. I also remember it for what it was not, a magical transformational moment. 
So I experience resurrection's power today as a challenge to live my full life, to walk humbly with my fellow travelers, to remember that I'm a small cog in a very large and overreaching organism, and that small though I may be, I play a role no one else can. Sunrise, sacrifice, redemption, and resurrection, those are the Easter themes for me, but I've seen too much. I've walked too far and grown too wise to force myself, comfort myself, or limit myself to the visions that floated around me in my youth. This is to me the power of resurrection, and as I enter into it more deeply, I'm called to new visions and new ways of living and praying over and over again.
Oh my gosh, am I the only person who just had this silly goofball smile across my face during that entire piece? That was so delightful. Thank you. I'd invite us to settle in, Ooh, take a deep breath, in and out. Do what you need to bring yourself fully to this hour if you're not already fully here. And let's take a moment for some meditation and prayer together. Spirit of life that moves through winter's hard ground to allow bright blossom and young green life to push through. God, we know by so many names in this world and force beyond all inadequate naming. We gather for so many reasons today, brought from so many places literal and virtually into this space together. We come out of nostalgia for Easter's of our childhood and youth, remembering them vividly in this moment, the layers through time. All those sanctuaries whose walls and windows we memorized every inch of as we dozed and fidgeted our way through the services when they didn't let us leave to do Easter egg hunts. We come because we cannot imagine some of us Easter without church, without hearing again the stories that we know by heart, singing hymns filled with soaring alleluias, sitting beside people we love and those we've never even met, but in that great cry of rejoicing and hope that connects us despite all apparent differences. We come because we need a little grace in our lives, a little inoculation against cynicism and loneliness and despair. Some of us came because someone dragged us here, or were with someone who was kind enough to let themselves be dragged. Maybe some of us even are here by accident, thinking they were headed somewhere else, <laughs> not realizing it was Easter. Maybe we're here for the very first time ever. But here we are, the gathered, the faithful and the doubting, the seeking and the sought. The ones who are known and the ones seeking desperately to be known. Here we are, some of us with hearts so wide open that the whole world could fit inside and some days feels like it is and others whose hearts are closed so tightly and have been for so long that we wonder if they can open up again but we bring that wondering and hope to this moment. 
Here are gathered the perfect and the broken, the wise and the hopelessly, gorgeously naive, the healthy and the ailing, brought to this altar that is every week of our own making. and offering ourselves up to the spirit of life that pushes through cold winter ground to budding green of new life, and to the God of many names and no name at all that moves through all that moves through this hour and this space and our bodies too. And this morning we ask that all that is dead in our lives be raised up, and all that is entombed in us and the world be set free, and all hearts be opened, and all lives be reanimated to trust, to rejoice, to delight, and then to remake the world in that spirit. For these and all the prayers we bring to this gathered moment, this gathered body in this hour, we pray. May those meditations of our hearts and those prayers we whisper be heard and healed and responded to. Amen. Our offering for this morning is being taken for the minister's discretionary fund, a fund that answers to all sorts of needs that come to us during the year, helped make some of the self-publishing of our history possible, but this month also has paid for home health care for someone who came home from the hospital and needed support and food and veterinary bills, and so many things during the year that we cannot predict, but we want to be able to respond to with love and generosity. Thank you for making all of that that I just named possible in this year past. And this offering will help make possible what we do not yet know will come our way, that we can minister to it with generosity and love. Thank you for your gifts.
I'm always relieved when we excuse the kids before the sermon at Easter. I'm actually scanning for children. <laughs> Holy Week is not for the faint of heart. And how do you talk about Easter without talking about Holy Week? How do you talk about and understand the power of this morning's sunrise without talking about the long, hard night, nights that preceded this morning in the story, in, in any story, similar story? And what comes before the empty tomb is pretty rough stuff. We didn't talk about it last week because it was also our Sunday to honor Passover, but in some ways the Easter story very much begins the week before on Palm Sunday. On that day, Jesus, this man who feels this calling to upend all kinds of false hierarchies and pushes the bounds of what it means to live centered in an ethic of love and mutual accountability, who lives with extraordinary compassion and courage, this man enters Jerusalem. And he enters to the ancient equivalent of a ticker tape parade, but he enters knowing what his well-wishers, most of them do not know, which is what waits for him. He's had a vision of what's to come, and it's so harrowing that he retreats to a garden to pray and asks that the cup be taken from his lips. We all know that kind of a prayer. We've said our own version in moments of fear and overwhelm at what may face us or someone that we love. Please not cancer, please not Alzheimer's, please let the injuries be minor, please let me keep my job, especially now, a thousand prayers for intercession. And sometimes we do get a reprieve, right? But Jesus doesn't. Not not in this story. And to his credit, he doesn't turn around and run from his fate. He steps into it. 
Palm Sunday is his stepping forward into it with all those well-wishers welcoming him to a living nightmare. I always felt for him, especially in that moment, the dread, the deep breaths. And the rest of the week includes a Passover Seder with disciples that ends in his betrayal and the farce of a public trial and a crowd bloodthirsty and ignorant and an execution carried out without sparing much emotional or physical cruelty. I never saw Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, because I don't go to movies where there's torture. I know intimate evil exists, but I cannot bear to watch it. For Gibson and a lot of mainstream Christians like him, Jesus' death was a cosmic ransom paid for our souls. For them, the desire is for all Christians to take that price seriously, as seriously as it deserves to be, to be, to be immersed in that call to accountability, to be devoted to this person, this God who paid the price for them. For some you use, that's true too. For most, the story plays out a little differently through time. We Unitarian Universalists, especially in more recent decades, have not trucked well with the idea of a God who would send any of God's children to a torturous death or require such a sacrifice in order to forgive the rest of God's children our God was a fundamentally loving and compassionate force in the universe and in our own hearts. So none of that fit into this equation, which means that instead the Easter story becomes more of a human story. And the cruelty and the suffering has to have another purpose for us to dignify it with a retelling. I had a professor at Stanford in a class called the Morality of Peace and War, who talked about various kinds of moral reasoning, about the various ways you could engage in making moral decisions. There was utilitarian reasoning where you asked, what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And deontological reasoning, which as I recall, basically asks you to follow the moral rules or laws and sometimes to reason between laws and weigh them if both are appropriate to a given decision. But there was this other form of moral reasoning that I found compelling and the hardest in some ways. He called it erotological, a form of reasoning that had its roots in the Greek word arete for excellence, but excellence in the sense of personal, intimate excellence, like virtue. That's about living a deeper purpose well. And erotological reasoning, as he understood and described it, was this idea that we all have this tender and strong place inside, what I would call soul force, as 
Gandhi did. And if I were to describe it, it would be the place that draws us to the good and the beautiful and the true, like metal shavings to a magnet or plants pivoting toward the sun. And our job is to grow our relationship to that mystery and that knowing inside of us, and also to avoid wounding that relationship with thoughtless, cruel, degrading actions and choices, to tend to it. And in that framework, Easter becomes a story first of just how evil can show up in the world and how we will have to live and make choices in the face of that reality. Because you can't know the significance of Easter's revelation without looking squarely at the evil that precedes it. How all the forms of human evil are present in this story. There are the people who get caught up in the crowd and are gravely misled in their actions, the soldiers who are just doing their jobs, the king who forgets his humanity and his quest for power and the desire to keep it, even the folks who have stayed away from the events in the square so they won't have to witness what's going on or actively choose whether to risk their lives to protest or prevent it. They're implicated too. And so too is the intimate betrayal by Jesus' disciple because if someone's going to benefit from the wrongdoing, the betrayal, it might as well be him. There's every kind of soul wounding in the story, every kind of bad eratological reasoning. Just as this week in Palestine and Israel and so many other places, there was also every kind of soul-wounding choice being made. And Friday, that day in Holy Week, so confusingly called Good Friday, is when we see what it means to make those choices. Jesus dies on the cross, the sky, the story tells us, is rent, leaving one of the bleakest landscapes in human history, literally or figuratively, without light. A person who embodied goodness, who was, by all accounts, wise and kind and visionary and courageous, who taught people not to throw the first stone without looking first at their own hearts and brokenness and errors, who taught that if someone needed something from you, you should give them all that you could, who said there was room for everyone at the welcome table to love your neighbor as yourself, but also don't defile the temples of the world with commerce, know that some things are sacred beyond measure, or you will lose your soul. So much he said and did that was gorgeous and precious, and the world had and still has too little of it. And it was taken away, all of that, in the most cruel and heartless ways. And everyone who was there, or near enough by that they could have done something and didn't, was complicit in the story and how it ends. The way we are all often complicit when evil happens, when it's allowed to. And you and I know that 
These stories happen all the time, not just in the Bible, right? My best friend's parents lost half of their family in the Holocaust, both of them. Rohit and I, when we traveled to Cambodia years ago, had a guide whose parents, a doctor and a nurse taking care of the world, were killed by Pol Pot and their his siblings, each of them sent to a separate work farm, and they managed to find each other eventually, the oldest restarting as head of the house with traumatized siblings at 17 years old, the head of the house. And so many other stories. These are the moments we see what form evil can take. These are the moments that raise the question, the Good Friday question, why go on? In such a world, why go on? But this is where Easter begins. Growing up, whenever I would get despairing about something in my life, my mom, who's lovely and super kind, would tell me, despair is a good thing. Because, she said, because only when you feel despair sometimes are you willing to do what you have to to change the thing that's breaking your heart or making your life a misery. Despair clarifies the choice point like nothing else. Because in a world where you and I are despairing, we are despairing because it looks like evil or hopelessness has triumphed. Because you, like the woman who stood, the women who stood at the base of the cross in the story, simply to witness and be present, powerless but present, because in one of those moments we have lost everything we loved most. And in that moment, it can look like Pontius Pilate and the false leaders of the temple and human depravity have won. And it can look like they crushed a movement and killed a man so sweet he seemed made of different stuff than you and I. And it's the same way life must have looked in all despairing moments through history, or right now in America if you are a child or a parent sending your kid to school in a world that is more in love with their guns than the mental health and safety of our children. We're in an America right now where if you're a woman who needs an abortion for all the reasonable reasons to want freedom and control over your body and your destiny but can't get one, or in America now, if you are someone born into a body that doesn't feel like the right one for you and every day you're trapped in that body and other people want to trap you in it forever and that makes life unlivable for you. Why go on? These are the moments that Easter speaks to. These are the moments, the hardest ones, when, when we have a story and the choice it reminds us of. To give evil a victory, it's victory to let the grave the claim everything we love and hope for and believe in and surrender? Or, or to do, begin to do what we can 
which this Easter morning in the story was those Marys, the three of them who are named at the base of the cross, who arrive as soon as they can, as soon as the Sabbath bands are lifted with sunrise to wash and prepare the body of Jesus for proper burial, this act of love and devotion and tenderness and loyalty because it's all they can do to speak of love right now. So they'll do just that. And what they find, whether you believe it literally or as a metaphor, is an empty grave. And two shining figures, the story says, who say that the grave is not the end of the story. And then what they, and later others, find who hit the roads to make sense of life after Jesus is Jesus himself, we're told, on the road with them, body, spirit, whatever, whatever interpretation feels true and real and beautiful to you. It was enough for them. And 2,000 years later, we tell this Easter story because these people, or those they inspired, wrote this story first with their lives and their ministries to the world, and later they wrote it on scrolls and in the hearts of people they shared it with. And sure, Christianity gets led astray in history many times, and it also gives people hope and a moral compass and has for millennia. There's a town in Europe that hid and saved hundreds of Jews in the Holocaust, and when asked why they did it, a small town, why did they do it? They said it's because Jesus said to love your neighbor, and that was enough. The story didn't end at the cross, where the tomb, a version of the story, began there. So Easter is about evil, in part. And I don't ever want to forget that. I hope we don't forget that. And Easter is even more about what living in the face of evil and despair will require of us. And how we face it down and lead our own hearts and others into a world that bets on love instead, that reaches for connection and justice and toward compassion and mutuality and courage, that serves the, the love, the good that we love with our lives against all odds some days, some days against all evidence, and we, the Easter people, we choose hope and a new story, and sometimes we do whatever we can. One town that needs its children to know they're precious. One place to resurrect a dream. One lost cause we will not surrender at a time. One sunrise, one empty tomb at a time. Because despair is not an option. None of the great stories or great faith traditions or great lives we knew intimately or through history ever chose despair. Easter people, in whatever faith tradition we find them, wherever we find them, Easter people are those who live resurrection. 
Hope, Emily Dickinson wrote, is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. And the Reverend Molly House Gordon said, the lesson for the women, for the forces of empire, for us in this is you can crush love down, you can bury it, you can cover it over, but it will rise. It will reach for the sun and we will reach for each other even when everything is uncertain, even when we are grieving, even when the loss keeps coming, even when we are forced apart, even when we are bone weary. We keep reaching for each other. We keep rising in love. We know something of that on this maskless Sunday. We know something of this, people of the eighth principle, figuring out how to undo the evil of white supremacy in the wake of so much senseless human violence against black and brown lives. We know something of this, people who will leave today without their coffee so that we can make room for others to be fed and loved in our space. Because as Amanda Gorman, the young, gorgeous poet we all now know once wrote, there is always light if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. So may we each be the dawn of Easter's eternal sunrise in this gorgeous, aching world. That is the reason for bonnets and pastel ties and alleluias, if ever there were one. So happy Easter, everyone. Blessings and a life resurrected from any places it's entombed, and a love taking hold of us so big and bold and unstoppable, it resurrects the world around us be ours. Happy Easter, everyone. Amen. Let's sing together our hymn. The words are printed in your order of service because we've changed them in good Unitarian Universalist style. And the choir is going to sing verse 3, so we'll just, for those of us who rise as your able in body and spirit to sing, and those uh, will remain standing even as the choir sings verse 3, and then we'll join them again for verse 4.
standing. Put down your hymnals or papers. Richard, why don't you come and we'll join hands in that reaching out to one another, that connection. That's part of how we resurrect life in this world. And now in our comings and our goings, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us, be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the Easter day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.